we had probably stole this truck and came in to harm her husband. But that fear was in her. And that kind of fear, you know, you, I think about that now, and it always tells me, um, you know, the, the fear of the black male, it's, it's, it's real. It's definitely real. I made assistant chief and um, went to an emergency downtown. All of these trucks come in, and the assistant chief usually stands outside, and you coordinate the firefighting efforts. And so I have on a white shirt, the assistant chiefs wear white shirts and white hat, and some guy comes out of the hotel and runs up to me and says, can you grab those other two bags? I'm late for my flight. And I thought to myself, and I got angry too, I said, I'm here on an emergency. And then I thought to myself, he doesn't see me, he sees black. Child passenger safety is serious business. Let's look at the rules. Children under the age of one are required to be in a rear-facing seat in the back of a vehicle, but experts recommend keeping a child in a rear-facing seat for as long as possible. Children from age two through five should be in a forward-facing car seat, and kids four to 12 should be in a booster seat. Also, safety experts recommend children under the age of 13 sit in the back seat due to the airbag. Please remember, proper fit varies greatly depending on age, weight, height, and physical development. For more information on how to keep your child safe at every stage, visit carseatscolorado.com. How dangerous is it to unwrap a hamburger at 45 miles per hour? Let's find out. Okay, go. Now let's see that again. Grabbing lunch, you just missed 20 cyclists. The driver that hit me while I was riding my bike didn't see me either. Shift into safe. Don't drive distracted. A standard automobile windshield and ping pong table are both five feet wide. And driving, like ping pong, requires good peripheral vision and reaction time. Driving under the influence, however, reduces both. These goggles simulate alcohol impairment. Last year, one out of every three Colorado traffic fatalities involved an impaired driver. My daughter was one of those killed. Shift into safe. Get a safe ride home. Snake sheds are something that many of us have seen, whether out on a trail or at a nature center. But why do snakes shed their skin to begin with? My name is Elizabeth, and I work with Colorado Parks and Wildlife in the Schools and Outdoor Learning Environments program. And today, I'd like to shed some light on snake sheds.
as animals, we all shed our skin to some degree, whether it's exposure to the sun or particles that come off when we bathe. But the way snakes do it is entirely different. Snakes, like other reptiles, have scales that allow them to move, keep in moisture, and offer general protection to their body. Scales aren't the snake's skin, but actually a layer of protection above it. These scales are made up of a strong protein called keratin, the same material that makes up human hair or fingernails. It feels dry to the touch rather than slimy, like some might think. Scientists call the process of shedding skin ectasis, and it's only ice for snakes. During ectasis, snakes develop a dull, bluish-white appearance just before they begin to shed. And that's because snakes don't have eyelids, like that of mammals, and cannot blink. So instead, their eyes are protected by a thin layer of scale called the spectacle. This can cause a change in behavior for the snake, including increased anxiety. Here with the Soul Team, we see this as a time to leave our soul educator snakes alone. Imagine having your eyes covered up if you were used to seeing out of them. They might make you a little on edge, too. Snakes shed their scales in order to help them grow and also to help to get rid of damage and unwanted parasites. The process usually takes about one or two weeks and can happen throughout the year. Recently, our soul educator snake, Horace, here, went through that process. Now with his new set of scales, he's able to educate new sets of students to come. Is there a topic that you'd like to see us cover? Go ahead and add it to the comments below. Había un niño que era muy sensible a luces y sonidos. Construía escondites donde no podían entrar. No le gustaba mirar a la gente a los ojos. Lo hacía sentir incómodo. Un día se descubrió que tenía autismo. Con ayuda, poco a poco, aprendió a vivir mejor con ello. Mientras más pronto se diagnostique, mejor. Conoce las señales en autismspeaks.org. We could find a way to get inside each other's minds. If you could see you through my eyes instead of your ego, I believe you'd be surprised to see that you've been blind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Yeah, before you abuse, criticize and accuse Walk, Walk a mile in my shoes Walk, Walk a mile in my shoes Well, before you abuse, criticize and accuse Walk a mile in my shoes
welcome to the Land Use, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee meeting of Denver City Council. Full coverage of this session of the Land Use, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee begins now. Transportation and Infrastructure Committee meeting. My name is Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval, and I have the honor of chairing this amazing committee. Today we have one action item and a really important briefing from Community Planning and Development. But before we get started, let's go around the room and do some introductions, and I'll start to my left. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, Diana Romero Campbell, Southeast Denver District 4. Loral Vidres, Lucky District 7. Uh, good afternoon, Paul Cashman, South Denver, District 6. Jamie Torres, District 3. Chantel Lewis, District 8. Good afternoon, Daryl Watson, Fine, District 9. Good afternoon, Denver. Denver's, uh, Chris Hines, Denver's Perfect 10. Thank you all. So first up, we'll start with our action item, um, community planning development. Hello, um, my name is Etienne Ibanez with TPD. Before you today, we're looking at 4862 West 30, uh, 13th Avenue. The request is to go from a row house up to three stories um, to a multi-unit up to three story zone district. Um, so I'll go through the request. I'll look at the location and context of the site. Um, we will review the process and the review criteria for this uh, map amendment. So the site there highlighted in red um, is located on the corner of 13th Avenue and Xavier Street. So the applicant is seeking to construct an apartment complex at the site. Um, the current zoning uh, URH, uh, the current zoning of RH3A is a row house zone district with the A that does allow for the apartment building form, but specifically at this intersection, it doesn't allow the apartment building form because there's a specific condition in the Denver zoning code that says that the street types to allow apartment building form has to be a collector or arterial street. In this situation, the street types are, are local streets, so an apartment building form is not allowed here. Um, so that's why the applicant is requesting to rezone to an ME3 that would allow for them to build an apartment here. Uh, so the site itself is 15,000 square feet, um, and it's currently a sixplex. Um, and, and this uh, specific application has been accepted into ACART, which is our affordable housing review team. Um, so it's located in Council District 3, as you can see highlighted there in the circle. It's also in the West Colfax neighborhood. Um, as you can see, the zoning is URH3A, which is the urban row house 3A. So everything to the north, to the east and to the west is the row house up to three stories. Um, directly to the south is the GMU5, which is a multi-unit up to five stories. Um, you can kind of see the open space there directly to the south as well. Um, and then the Sheridan station there is to the southwest. Uh, um, so the sixplex you can see in the top right corner. Um, and then on the bottom, you can see a lot of slot homes and multi-unit homes that have been built in, in the vicinity. Um, and so going through the process, the information on notice was sent out um, back in August and went before uh, planning, uh, planning board on the 7th of this month um, and uh, the planning board waived the staff report and the presentation and there was no comments at planning board. Um, so it's before you today and it's scheduled tentatively to go before city council on 
April 1st. Um, uh, within our typical processes, we notify all the different RNLs, and then we have received no comments on the application. Um, and so there's five review criteria that every MAP amendment has to follow uh, that is found in our Denver zoning code, which are first one, because it's with adopted plans, uniformity dysregulations, how is this going to further the public health, safety, and welfare, and justifying circumstances and consistency with neighbor context, zone district purpose, and sense statements. So I'll dive into all these. So the first one, consistency with adopted plans. So we're looking at three specific plans for this rezoning, which is comprehensive plan 2040, blueprint Denver, and then the West Area Plan was just adopted last year. Um, so there's multiple strategies highlighted in the staff report, but I just wanna go over a few under equity and climate. So in the equitable, affordable, and inclusive goal two, strategy A, create a greater mix of housing options in every neighborhood for all individuals and families, and then strong and authentic neighborhoods, goal one, strategy D, encourage quality and full development that is consistent with the surrounding neighborhood and offers opportunities to increase amenities, and then under climate, environmentally resilient goal A, strategy A, promote infill development where infrastructures and services are already in place. Um, when we dive into Blueprint Denver, this area is classified as uh, general urban, um, where we see a vibrant, um, vibrant places with proximity to Denver's major centers. And uh, home in these contexts vary from multi-unit complexes to complex single-unit homes. Um, Within the future place type, this is classified as uh, low medium residential where you know, the anticipated high is three stories, but it's primarily residential with a mix of multi-unit uh, mix of unit types, such as single and two unit homes um, and lower scale multi-unit buildings. And like I mentioned with the street types, um, 13th Avenue and Sabre streets are local streets, which are more categorized by local streets. Um, under the current zone district, the RA, that would have to be like a collector street or arterial street for it to match for the apartment building form, but that's not the case here. So that's why they're rezoning. Um, for all other areas, that, um, for the growth area strategy, the property is classified as all other areas of the city. We're gonna anticipate to see 20% of new housing growth and 10% of new employment growth by 2040. Um, when we look at the small area plan, um, it's classified as low medium residential where we, again, we see a mix of low to mid-scale multi-unit residentials with a high recommendation of three stories. And there's specific recommendations that talk about explorer strategies. So affordable housing is available everywhere by implementing approaches that promote a diversity of affordable housing options within the neighborhood. Um, within the second, um, the proposed zone of GMU3 will result in a uniform application of zone district building form use and design regulation. And it, this will further the public health, safety, and welfare by being consistent with the adopted plans and it provides additional housing units that are compatibly integrated within the surrounding neighborhood. It's consistent with the uh, justifying circumstance as specified in the adopted plans more recently with the West Area uh, Plan. And then it's consistent with the neighborhood context zone district purpose and intent statement as specified in the staff report. Therefore, CPD recommends approval based on all the findings of the criteria have been met. I'm available for questions. The applicant is here for any questions as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. First in the queue is Councilman Cashman. Yeah, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Edson, you said something. Um, the planning board waived the staff report. Well, what does that mean? What do they consider? Um, so, um, Something recently that the planning board adopted is that we no longer, rezoning is no longer on a, are on a consent agenda. They're part of the regular agenda. And so 
when a, when a rezoning is presented to us, like an AGU, for example, or something that's consistent and we feel like has no level or controversial um, or opposition letters, the applicant, uh, the planning board can choose to waive the staff report and um, the presentation and just go straight to seeing if there's comments from members of the public because they feel it's consistent and they can just move forward with that. So with similar that. to how we operate with our own consent agenda. Correct. There's not, there's, <clears throat> there's not a separate vote. Yeah. Right. Thank you, just wanted to clarify. That's all, Madam Chair. Thank you. And first I'd like to welcome Councilman Parity and Councilman Lewis to the meeting. Next up we have Council President Torres. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Edson. Um, I think what I'm interested in is a little bit more information about how it ended up in the AHART track and if there's any info to share based on um, what affordability it's contemplating for that for that to be triggered. Um, I'll let the applicant kind of share kind of what their affordable levels and what they're trying to accomplish at the site. Great, thank you. Hi, Nick. Nick Young, 2060 Hoyt Street. And this building, the owner actually owns the lot adjacent to the south, which is GMU 5. And so we're actually doing a kind of shared development approach in regards to a shared drive aisle, as well as um, components of parking. So we're meeting zoning code for the reduced parking for affordability. So 100% of the units about this particular lot as well to the south gonna are gonna be 60% AMI or better or relative to the zoning code when this presumably gets through in eight to 12 months or so. The whole building will the be 60%, that's amazing. Um, so the lot that we're rezoning is only part of the whole development. You're gonna use the smaller lot that's just south of it as well? Correct. And that'll be for the parking component? No, no. Um, so with the zoning standards, you can park 0.1 space per unit that's 100 or per unit that's 60% AMI or less. Um, so we're taking that approach for both buildings. Okay. So essentially, I guess it lies in your guys' issues. Them being tied together is really great um, because that project can't move forward unless this one okay. with that affordability component as well. So How two buildings will have affordability components. Got it. And that one's MU5 already? GMU. GMU5. Okay. Um, this one will be GMU three, but you'll earn a floor by doing um, the affordability. We looked into that. This one's extremely complicated because both it's a corner lot, so both streets. So we've been working on this for over a year. I've been meeting with Heidi and Jonathan Piera for a while. Um, I can speak more of that in a moment. But the um, challenge is it's actually considered two primary streets. Therefore, the base plane is derived from the lower elevation. And as you know, it drops off dramatically to the rail. What's the, what's the difference? Do you, can it's you, a story. It's a story different. You yeah. lose a story. Um, we try to fight that, but we'd have to go through um, a variance process and it's hard to justify for certain things. So rather we move forward. What we want to do in these buildings is not provide a podium because that's extremely expensive. Um, so if we can maintain a three-story building, that's actually better from a cost perspective. You can build a 200 square foot rather than 300 square foot. That's, it's, it's a pretty interesting way of using, I think, this property. Um, uh, are both owned by the same property owner? Correct. They are. The second lot has, does it have anything on it right now? Um, I believe there's a single family home on the south. This existing lot has a, I think it's a four or a six unit. I think it's since it's six. I think it's six. Okay. 
Is there any sense that those residents, would they qualify for the 60% AMI? This owner is a stellar guy. His yeah. intent is to communicate with them okay. and get them in. But Try to get them back eight, in. 12 months out minimum. Okay. Um, Ed's, thank you so much, Nick. Um, Edson, I think the only other question I had was um, the uh, applicability of the West Area Plan. Um, height recommendation, three stories. This would be three stories. We had a lot of conversation about applying EHA on top of that. It, if, if, say, for example, this plan changes, could somebody with MU3 go higher than three stories? I believe within the MU, you can go to four. I have to double check on that okay. one. But okay. I think with the height incentive, you can go up to four. In an MU. So I have district. to double check the MU. It's, it's always that tricky one because I'm always looking at the mixed use allows you, yeah. but I have to make sure with the MU and I can get back to you. On okay. That. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I don't think I have other questions. Uh, maybe just one more, Nick, for you. Um, the outreach, I didn't see any um, letters, did, but I did see the copies of your emails out to the RNOs. They just didn't reply. Respond, or the only ones I got a response for from were Heidi and Jonathan. I've been meeting with them for a year. And they're members of WeCan, but they, but WeCan doesn't take positions, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and those conversations focus has been on green space as well as bike parking. So we're providing one-to-one -one bikes actually in this. So our, our entire lower level is half bike uh, with EV charging cord and everything. It's okay. Cool. That sounds like good conversation then. Okay, thank you, Nick. Thank you, Madam Chair. No further questions. Thank you. Next in the queue, we have Council, Councilwoman Alvitres. Thank you, Committee Chair. Um, is your mic on? It is. <clears throat> I maybe just wasn't close enough to it. Um, but thank you. And uh, my question is actually just for Nick. I'm curious, um, will this be 100% for rent or is there any for purchase? And just wondering. As of now, it'll be for rent. For rent. Um, would you consider any condo sales or is, I'm just curious if the condo defect law is affecting your choice or if it's just like the numbers that are keeping it a rental property. I think in general, most of our clients, yes, condos scare people still, even though laws have been getting better. Mm -hmm. um, in general, the only clients we're seeing as a design group see move forward with condos are typically when the builder is part of the development group because they can leverage that, those fees in, in regards to ownership and maintain quality, whereas if they were to just to sell off the building or sell those units, the liabilities are highly increased. As from a design group, our liabilities, insurance is different for us. Like we don't do them in-house because of that. Yeah. Okay. Just, just wanted to ask for my own information, not that it affects my voting, but I appreciate yes. that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, committee chair pro tem. Do I call you pro tem or committee chair? Or does Six it matter? Of one, half a dozen. Okay. Times. Whatever you <laughs> right, we have thanks. too much to remember. I won't <laughs> pressure you on anything else. Thank um, you. Yeah. Uh, I have just a question for you, Nick. Um, as so you talked about the fall going from 13th down to the gulch. Um, this area used to be under council district one and now it's under council district three. Do you have to build out sidewalks and what kind of stormwater mitigation do you have to do? Because I know that this gets um, really icy during certain times. Is there any requirements as you build height that you have to do extra stormwater build out? Typically stormwater is derived from the 
lot size that you're um, modifying in this case or disturbing. Uh, for this, with the combined, they're seeing this as a combined zone lot, a lot to the south, or just south of, or yep. just under half an acre. So you don't have to do storm water management on site. However, we're finding out right now, we should have our first site development plan comment back any day now, um, if we can actually tap into the actual storm sewer that's out in the street. Um, in regards to right-of-way improvements, yes, you'll have your typical eight-foot tree lawn and five-foot detached walk, but we're actually trying to increase the northern side, I'm sure, since you both that used to be your district, but that north side's tight with everyone parks, heck, everyone parks on every street there on both sides. So we're trying to increase that right away uh, and make that northern side better. The southern portion or heading south is always tough, but to dedicate more there really doesn't do anything, um, especially if like a FedEx truck there, it's really tough, so. Got it. And then because you're part of the um, affordable housing Remind me, does it go, how long does the deed get recorded for? Um, I think since this will be so inherently tied with the zoning, um, I'm not quite certain. So we have, a, once we get our first round of SDP comments back, we'll move forward with host and get those agreements signed. However, with the zoning standards, um, like they have to be that essentially no matter what, especially since we're combining both lots and um, I guess I don't know the answer to that. Okay. All right. If you could find out and email us, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, do we have a motion to move 0155 forward? We have a motion by President Torres, a second by Councilman Watson. Thank you all, and we'll see you um, at City Council. Next up, we have a briefing on expanding housing affordability. Um, which goes by acronym EHA, but I try not to use acronyms because the city's full of acronyms and it's too confusing. So with that, I'll pass it over to Emily. Good afternoon, thank you city council uh, president and members of council, let me pull this up for us. Um, so today we're here to provide an update on the memo that we recently sent you in January. Um, so I do have an agenda to run through just to make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of some background related to EHA, um, some key dates, information on our grace period volume and distribution, staffing review times, and some strategies, as well as uh, the status of all of the projects currently in our queue. Um, and I apologize, I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Emily Collins. I'm the EHA administrator. I've been in the position since, um, well, almost a year. So. Okay, so for some background, as you may know, the uh, mandatory report outs were part of the DRMC and it was our commitment to regularly provide updates to council. Um, we included metrics such as the summary of the grace period projects, uh, the status of those projects, whether they were approved in review, which review cycle they were in, um, information on our staffing within the site design and neighborhood development team, SDND, um, and some background information on review times over time through these report outs. The first report out was in July of 2022. Our second report out was January of 2023. We also included a presentation um, back in May of 2023 when we did the SDP, so our site development plan approval deadline change. Um, 
Most recently, we were back before council at budget and policy in October of 23. And then this presentation is a follow-up from that January memo, um, which was our fifth report out. So again, uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page as far as what we're discussing for this grace period, this applies to any project that submitted a concept prior to June 30th of 22. Um, if they have proceeded into the formal site development plan review process, they have until May 17th to obtain approval if they have not progressed to a third review. If they reach a third review cycle by May 17th and it does require additional reviews, they will have an extended deadline, which is August 31st. And if the project was subject to the large development review process or has a subdivision plat included, they have until December 31st to obtain site plan approvals. So some background on our, our volume and, and the backlogs that we've all kind of been talking about as part of these report outs. Um, so the chart on the top left is showing our kind of average number of concept submittals that we see quarterly. And this dates back to 2019. So based on this information, we have about 107 uh, concepts that are generally submitted. So that would be about 30 per month, right? Um, as you can see in quarter two of 2022, we had 261 concepts just in that quarter. And of those 261, just in the month of June alone and the lead up to that June 30th deadline, we received 162 concepts. That's four and a half times our normal volume. So you can see how that would create a little bit of a bottleneck there. Um, the chart on the bottom right is all projects opened since 2019, right? It's giving you how many we see in a given year. We average about three to 400. And in 2022, we saw that jump up to over 500 projects. So this chart is showing you the distribution of the remaining grace period projects. So this isn't the total world, this is just what's left in our queue that has not been approved and how they're broken down by council district. As you can see, some were impacted more than others, which again, heavily inundating those reviewers can also create a backlog in the review. Um, some of the most impacted districts, one, three, seven, nine, 10, and 11. So um, again, some very popular areas that, that got hit with a lot of applications in that period of time and, and where we're still seeing a bit of backlog because of that. An update on staffing. Uh, so in 2023, we filled 11 vacancies in site design and neighborhood development. We're currently fully staffed and this shows you the breakdown of that. Um, four positions at intake, four in our associate, which is our zoning reviewer, uh, six positions for project coordinators, including the urban design architect who also functions as a project coordinator and two supervisors. Um, this staffing list does not include our team members who are in our adaptive reuse, large development review, or the affordable housing review team. Um, so we do have additional staff. They just don't review these pre-EHA or grace period projects. So diving in a little bit into some background on our review timeframes, two different statistics to look at here. So on the left, um, this table is showing you kind of the worst performance of a singular review um, and how that has declined. So for example, in 2022, uh, for one site development plan, the worst review timeframe was 267 days. That dropped to 91 days as the most late. That's not an average, that's not kind of everybody's project, that was just the most late. So our worst performing review. 
Um, but again, you can see that those numbers across all application types have continued to decline. Um, the other chart here is uh, showing kind of that cumulative look and really the, the title of that shouldn't say median days late. That, this is our overall on-time performance. Um, so this is showing you quarterly from last year. So we held pretty steady quarters one through three um, being a little bit more late than on time, but then quarter four, we saw some pretty big jumps and improvement there with a 41% on-time performance. Uh, so similar information presented in a different way. This is by month for all of 2023. This is the median days late. So out of our 284 projects that we have, you can see some peaks and valleys there um, where some of those lateness grew, but generally starting in August, that has been a steady downward trend. Um, also, I'd like to highlight this statistic for council um, that we've started tracking. So this is the time in process divided between time in the applicant's hands, which is in orange, and time with the city, which is both of the blue indicators. So this is what it looks like currently for those active projects. This doesn't show um, closed, complete, or approved projects. So right now, projects that are in that grace period are spending more time with the applicant team than they are spending with the city, whether that's through intake or city review possession. It's spending about 60% of the time in the applicant's hands and roughly 36% you know, of the time in our review possession. As far as review strategies, we have worked last year to rebalance our workload and we've consolidated our geographic review areas into three. We used to have seven review areas and now we have three and those also have multiple reviewers to help balance that workload. Um, so multiple zoning reviewers and project coordinators and the supervisors uh, review each project as it comes in and work to strategically balance that workload. Um, so we're not creating those backlogs again. Uh, additionally, we have monthly focus weeks in our work group. And so we advertise those in advance and let customers know that during the last week of the month, we will not be holding meetings, we will not be responding to emails, and that we are strictly focusing on our review queue, and that we will follow up with them you know, in the, the next week. So we've done that consistently since leave November of last year, um, and we continue to do those. And on a monthly basis, I also look at the grace period queue and see which ones have been submitted and are in our review queue, and then we send that information to each project coordinator and zoning reviewer and have them prioritize those reviews ahead of non-grace period projects. Um, and again, the, the median days late continues to decline with our prioritized um, workflow there. So little bit of uh, the world of our pre-BHA buckets here. This graphic is showing you all concepts and all SDP record types. So, um, June 30th, this is what our world looked like. We had roughly 1,600 records. That's not individual projects, that's records. Um, a site development plan can include multiple records associated with it from zoning permits to zone lot amendments, et cetera. So, but it is all of the work that we have to do, right? Those are still reviews that create a, a project. Um, so that was the world. You can kind of see how those are broken down, how many have been closed or inactive, over 500 projects closed, approved, et cetera. Um, so what we're focused on, right, is the 335 active projects. Um, and I've highlighted how many are in that resubmittal required bucket, which is over 200. Uh, how many were review in progress and which ones were in intake. 
And again, this is just a snapshot as well. But to break that down a little bit further, um, I filtered out the concept records as well as SDP modifications. Um, generally, when we're looking at these different types of applications, a standard SDP means a new project, right? It's going through a full review. An SDP amendment, the scope of work could be changing the density of the project, changing the scope and scale of the project, something that's a pretty major change that requires a full review again. Whereas SDP modifications are minor changes, maybe something to the facade or an elevation or a small site plan layout change, landscaping, parking layout, something not as impactful. And so I filtered those out and we're left with just the standard and amendment projects. So of those, we have roughly 284, that number changes daily. Um, and this graphic is showing where those are in terms of review cycles. And so you can see the majority of the projects are still in zero to three reviews. So that would mean those projects are subject to the May 17th deadline right now, unless they can hit that third review, get it completed and they have additional review cycles required. Um, and on this page, uh, we've broken that down even further to show as of February 12th, when this was taken off the dashboard, how many were in our hands, so that was 74 projects, and how many were still with the applicant, so on that date it was 210, and again, it shows you where those are at in terms of review cycles. Um, so we had generally, you know, 17 projects in second review, 16 in a third review, et cetera. Um, so that's just showing you where they're at in the review cycles. Um, so at this time, you know, we're reviewing the data to determine if there's a final change to the approved by dates, if it's necessary and what that date might be. Um, so we're still evaluating that, looking at the data every day. Uh, but at this time, I will entertain questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I had one thought before we go into questions on slide three. It's, it says background um, for my colleagues who got sworn in in July, they would have missed most of all of this. So they would have not been here in April of 2022. They wouldn't have gotten the July 26, 2022 memo, the January 2023, the May presentation to um, 20 in May. So I'm just wondering, and I, this is a question to my colleagues who are um, here with us in committee, if it would be helpful for their, um, them to send you these memos as we get caught up on any proposals. Um, I just noticed that that um, for those of us who are returning, we would have all of those memos in our inbox and we could figure out how to track them. But um, given that we have six new colleagues on council, um, I feel like it's appropriate if we could send that. So if you could select send to, if you could just send it to all city council members, that would be great. So the July 26th, the January 23rd. Um, for my colleagues, I'll just, uh, if you could look at the May 22nd city council, it was at city council. It's when we made the, um, distinctly, we pushed the expanding housing affordability back and granted it more time. So if you need that presentation, I can help you find it. I was the sponsor of that bill with Councilman Kanich. And then I'll just, if you all can rewatch the October 2nd, and then you would have the January 12th, but that I think can help you all um, 
just set a better foundation as we think about what kind of changes need to be made. Does that work? Absolutely. Awesome. So first up in the queue is Councilwoman Alvidrez. Thank you, committee chair. Um, and thank you so much for this presentation. I think I do need to look through, I would appreciate those other memos just to kind of get a full concept. Um, I know that I've been in talks with CPD about this as there's a few projects in my district that I know of. Apparently there's a lot more than I know of um, <clears throat> that are really struggling to get through um, the review process. And I think the one the thing that I found really helpful was like how many times things are reviewed that helps. Um, and that's a concern of mine just because personally I've gone through planning on a small project. I know this is for larger projects and it's like, you get comments and then you fix them, which it obviously takes in a little bit in defense of the people that are trying to get permits. It's, it takes a long time to rethink, like all of a sudden we need to get rid of this part that affects this other part, re-engineering, re. So I think the reason why it takes so long for people applying for a permit to get back to you all is because there's a lot that goes into just removing a window or changing the you know height. One concern I have, which I've heard um, and I would like to hear what you all have to say is that there's kind of arbitrary changes too. Like there's some kind of re review that's more just on opinion of how something looks. And to me, I, that's a concern for me because I think we should be building to code and making sure we're doing things right. But like how something looks isn't necessarily, shouldn't be holding up a project, you know, for a whole nother review time. Council members, Chris Bleisner, Community Planning and Development, uh, Development Services, thanks for having us. Um, it's a great question, um, and I actually attack it maybe a little bit differently. Um, our folks have fantastic experience. They see hundreds of projects a year, uh, so we actually ask them both to review to the code, as well as provide helpful tips and tricks. Uh, those tips and tricks, so to speak, don't hold you up, but it is sort of a, a professional level guidance of different solutions that we've seen through the years, different ways that an applicant or a team could think about solving a challenge or an issue that's not necessarily uh, by the code. I always, I always remind folks that the code is our minimum standard, right? You're always welcome to exceed our minimum standard and do a better job. We help try to guide that, um, but that is, not, uh, that is not information that holds or results in a denial of anyone's project. Okay, that's really helpful to know. Um, <clears throat> and then I think something else that has come up and I don't, I mean, I guess I'm curious to know if this happens on a lot of projects is just with a large development review, sometimes there's like all of a sudden different um, DOTI requirements or different transportation requirements, different setbacks that all of a sudden need to be taken into place and how that works when that needs to happen. Does that normally happen? Is that like a rare thing that happens? So there, there, are, there are sometimes conflicts between agencies' comments, and we do work to resolve those comments during the review cycle or on the next review cycle, whatever makes the most sense, depending on the, the content of those comments. Um, part of our process is to coordinate those multiple city agencies in uh, a, a consolidated, coordinated review process uh, with the eye to help minimize those conflicts when possible. Um, but they, they do come up and we do, we do try to keep an eye on those and help our applicants solve them. On that same note, if my plans were already approved like by Dottie 
and there's like an update to that area plan as far as the transportation side of things do you get grandfathered in or do you have to go back and change an update to the new plan around transportation for example so if, if you've received an approval on an application that approval is good for whatever the period of validity for that application is um, what you what you will see and, and I know several council members here have dealt with this in the past um, when there are changes to code requirements mm -hmm. Um, there, there's typically enabling leg legislation that deals with how that code gets enacted, whether there's, uh, for, you know, for EHA, whether there's a grace period, uh, whether there's just sort of a, a hard stop and a cutoff, and those, um, those tend to be different depending on the, the scope and scale of those changes, um, but in-flight changes to a, to a code or to a standard could certainly affect a project that's under review that hasn't yet reached, mm. uh, reached an approved Full status. Approval. Oh, okay. That's helpful. Um, I think that, you know, we've had several conversations around this and I'm really um, nervous just that we're gonna lose out on some really good, dense development in the district. And so I think that I've seen a great improvement, um, you know, and it's clear by the numbers that we're getting those reviews through, but definitely don't wanna see that expiration come through and lose out on housing that's gonna have to be like rethought out and restructured and, um, so that's just my feedback part, but I really appreciate the work that you all have done and the amount of meetings. And I love that fourth week of like, we're not taking meetings because I know the feeling I have to say, I can't take meetings on this day because I really need to get caught up on other things. So I think that's really great. So thank you for all your effort in this. I think um, I've definitely seen a lot of improvement and heard good things from community. So thank you. And thank you, Council. Thank you. Chair, committee chair. Next up, we have Councilman Watson. Uh, thank you, President Pro Tem. Um, I have a question concerning, let's see what page this is. Can't see the page, but it describes the 284 projects in um, site development plan review. Um, my question first is on process um, and uh, the steps that we take for these plans that are um, zero to three days. Um, when we're looking at such a high number of, of plans at zero to three, um, zero to three reviews, not days, what's the primary cause of those being only at three reviews? Is it that uh, it was sent back uh, to um, um, an applicant and they are working through process? Is it, give me some reasons why um, there's, from your perspective, so many of these in the third review. Yeah, I, I would love to be able to narrow it down to just one or two things. I could solve that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, this, what, we, what we see here, um, when you think of sort of the, the scope and scale of the system, right? Because this is, this is a, a snapshot of grace period projects, right? So there's, there's also a workload here uh, that these same team members are doing for projects that have come in since that grace period happened, right? So there's there's an entire portfolio of projects and then there's this snapshot of projects. Um, what happened uh, with that with that initial submittal deadline, right? We saw that spike in new projects coming in the door. Um, that created uh, a significant ripple effect that caused significant city timeline review delays for those projects that were in the system, meaning it took us longer to get through the review for each individual one because we had so many that came into the funnel, into that pipeline uh, to start with. Uh, so that set some of our projects and applicants back. We also measure, as Emily was saying, I know there's a graphic 
here somewhere. I'm going to fail to find it. There we go. Um, we also measure sort of time in, in the overall system so that we can understand the time that an application is in our applicant's hands. What we are, what we are seeing is that time currently is increasing a little bit. So whether that's our applicants thinking through sort of what they need to be successful moving forward, um, I can't say. I can tell you that every project is, is unique and each one faces their own pressures. Um, but I, I can also tell you there's not one particular issue that causes any of these things. It's usually a, a multitude of issues that have caused this. And to see projects, oh, I know it's here somewhere. To see projects that are still in that first review, second review, third review cycle, that tells me that, that both our delays and their delays have put this pressure on the system. And, and, and that's kind of where I'm leaning into. I, I see that, that number, um, the 528.3 um, total record time, and the fact that uh, I think 300 and customer possessions, 320, 60%, let me just use the percent, it's a little easier to, um, to communicate. I see breakage in the system. Now, let me be clear. I know your teams are absolutely doing um, everything they can, but when I see 60% is still in um, the applicant's um, hands and we have a deadline that is fast approaching, I'm curious as to, uh, I don't know if you use this term, um, straight through processing um, in my former life, we did that. Um, what we would do when we had a targeted program that was um, essential for the focus of our teams, we had a solid deadline that we had to meet. We would have uh, targeted teams, and I know you all had some of those targeted teams to bring down the number of backlogs. Um, are those targeted teams um, with kind of a straight through processing, meaning if something was sent back to an applicant, it didn't go back into the queue and someone else grabbed it you had a dedicated coordinated person that made sure that new eyes weren't reviewing and finding new stuff um, and that they worked that process to completion. Do you have a similar process? Number one, the targeted team attacking this backlog, which I see breakage on both sides. And do you have a coordinator that looks end to end? These are the things why this review keeps going back to this applicant and they're not going to make it. Do we have a coordinator within your um, your straight through process uh, program? Okay. Yes, there is a coordinator that oversees the system. That's that same project when it gets resubmitted comes back to that same cross agency team, right? So it's not new eyes on it. It's not someone refamiliarizing themselves with some new project that they've never seen before. It's it's a it's a constant um, it's a constant cycle of of submit resubmit, resubmit, always to the same team, always that's working from the previous round of comments to the new proposed solutions to how those address what's being done. Um, to, the other, to the other issue, yes, we are, we are consistently looking at our system and where we have opportunities for improvement. Uh, as, as Emily mentioned a bit, um, whether it's focus weeks, uh, whether it's continued trainings, uh, we are always looking at how we are taking uh, and setting those individuals up for the, the most success possible uh, in terms of what they're doing and how they're being supported. What, if anything, are we doing differently as we roll towards May? Is there an accelerated process for some of these that are just been sticky? We just can't get them out of the applicant's hands. We can't get them beyond 
the third review. Is there a new targeted process that you're considering? Obviously, you're not hiring more folks. Um, is there, is there a, 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 an additional process? So one of the one of the things that we recently implemented just at the end of December uh, is a is a weekly review of low review cycle projects. So low review cycle projects, let's go way down in the weeds. So right now it's it's an average of about six rounds of review for a project to be approved. Right, that's that's what we're seeing. That's when folks are getting all of their ancillary applications through, where they're getting everything kind of tied up neatly with a bow and and done. Um, so stepping back from that, how do we get projects that are pre six yeah. to the finish line, right? There's there's that issue. And then there's also the, the the May deadline for projects to get through a third round of review so you get extended time, right? So it's it's a little bit of a dynamic due date situation that we're dealing with. Uh, so we look weekly at projects that are six that are below six reviews so that we have a list of what's in our hands. Those are that's the stuff that I can actually work, that I can actually have team members focus on. And so that's what we do. We look where, where is this project? You know, if it's resubmitted, what's the status of it? What's outstanding? How do we have somebody get eyes on it right away so we're keeping it moving, right? Um, the other piece of that uh, is that monthly, because the, the tail of this thing is not, is not necessarily the driver of what we're doing, but sort, sort of those higher review cycle projects still result in those same teammates having to do work. So the faster or the more efficiently we can get those finished and closed out, the, the less next step we have for our folks. So we do that analysis and review on a, on a monthly basis. Um, again, it's not the bulk of the work, but it's, it's still a, a benefit and every little bit helps. Um, so that's, that's one of the, the newer processes that we've put in place to make sure that we have line of sight on those, uh, this whole sort of bulk of projects. That's that's helpful. And President Pro Tem, I, I think I'll, I'll set up a separate meeting with your team because of the number of District 9 cases. I can tell you, um, with all the stuff that our city is facing, this is one of the top complaints I get on a, a regular basis in District 9. Uh, folks who are wanting to provide affordable housing and are not able to get through this process. Um, many of them assumed it would be through this by December. Of last year um, and they're still in the third review. So maybe we can sit down and look through um, the impacts in District 9, those pro projects, and talk through kind of what's your uh, your plan um, for moving some of those through. But uh, thank you, Council President, and thank you so much for your presentation. And I'll just, maybe it was a slip, but Councilman Watson, you, these are all projects that don't have to provide ex affordable housing. These are all exempt from the expanding housing affordability process. Um, so they would just yeah. pay the linkage fee, correct, correct. Chris? Correct. Okay, because you can't, you said you want, they want to. And I think that, I, I'll just take say some commentary. I think all of us up here have heard that our permitting processes could be better. Um, I know that we had that as one of our um, budget amendments for 2024, and that it's something that we are working on. But just to remind folks, this all of these applicants are prior to the expanding housing affordability po um, policy that is now currently implemented. Next up, we have Councilman Romero Campbell. Uh, thank you, Madam Pro Tem. I have a, a kind of a wondering and a comment, uh, and similar to the line of thinking of my colleagues up here, 
but do you have any set goals? Um, and maybe this was in other presentations that happened over the past year. But as we're thinking, I, I appreciate the, the information that you shared and the numbers that are there, but what are your goals for what that turnaround time should be? And are we, do we have any metrics of what we're trying to work towards, one? And then I think related to that, um, I appreciate in slide seven, um, you specifically talked about the staffing and I kind of see that hand in hand for building the capacity. Um, can you talk a little bit about what those goals are and what you believe that capacity will be with the um, staffing that has been brought on in 2023? Yeah, great, great questions. I'll, I'll start with the staffing because it's a little easier. Um, we, we look at a strategic resource analysis every year to see sort of, hey, what is, what is the right level of staff mm -hmm. to deal with a particular number of applications in the door in terms of uh, the time it takes to get through reviews, what we're seeing in terms of productivity, things of that nature. Um, you all know the budget process. It's a lot of fun. And then you have what you have and you, you do the best you can with what you have. Um, we've got an amazing team that's on board. We do have a lot of new folks right now. So we're spending a lot of time on trainings, a lot of time bringing folks up to speed. Um, you've probably looked at the zoning code. It's about 1500 pages. Uh, we have two of them. Remember, we've got former 59 and the Denver zoning code. Um, I like to say that it takes about two years for someone to actually become proficient in the zoning code. So, you know, with a, a multitude of folks that have been on board for six months, um, that full proficiency is simply not there. Um, and we continue to work to support those folks. They continue to grow. It's, uh, as I said, it's an amazing team. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's a struggle that everyone has, right? Like that's, that's an issue that, that every organization across the globe will always have. So um, that's a, it's a continued focus of ours. In terms of goals uh, or specifics, um, I've got, you know, dashboard after dashboard to be able to sort of cut and slice the data that I have in front of me. Given that our queues are not driven by a managed workload, on-time performance is a result of the number of projects that have been submitted, not the productivity of the team. So our goals are far, far more about that review productivity. Are you consistently, effectively, and efficiently utilizing your time in getting the expected number of high quality reviews out the door on a monthly, quarterly, weekly basis, uh, whatever that is, um, that, that does lead to on-time performance if those two pieces are matched. Um, but again, given, right, given that spike of applications in the door, I didn't get a four-time increase in staff capacity to match that, right? So the, the natural outcome of that is delayed reviews, but what we've been really hyper-focused on is making sure that folks are getting those good reviews consistently out the door in the numbers that we would expect and the numbers that we would push for, uh, always looking to see if there's ways that we can enhance, improve uh, ourselves and our process to do that. So yes, we have a multitude of goals that we that we shoot for and, and push for. Um, I think related. So I, I guess since they since people have been hired in 2023, it's going to take. Um, if I understand what you're saying, it takes a little bit to figure out um, for people to kind of figure out the zoning code, figure out the role, move it through. Do you anticipate that this team will be sufficient to be able to move people through the process, or do you imagine that they're the team needs to grow? Um, you know, we are always looking to do the best we, the 
the best possible with what we have. It's it's always hard to speculate what I'll have next year, the year after. Um, so try to always try to keep my eye on the ball in, in terms of what's ahead of me right now. Um, what we are seeing with, with the continued trainings we've done, with the efficiencies that we've put in place, as well as the efficiencies that we're currently working on to put in place, we continue to see our performance numbers improve in terms of uh, reduction of days late, in terms of on-time performance, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, at some point, those two, those two lines will merge. Um, I, don't, I don't have a prediction of when that is, um, but we're certainly pushing as hard as we can. I, um, a wondering on my end is once we get to the level of capacity that we, you know, that people can operate and we think we have it, it's, I just, I hear what you're saying of it takes two years to be as efficient as possible in these reviews and as knowledgeable as needed. Um, as we are all uh, hoping for, you know, expanded housing affordability, I can only imagine that that pipeline would continue to grow. I think is that correct? Am so. I understanding it correctly for yeah. for what the capacity is? Anyway, okay. I'm just just thinking about what that means and the impact and efficiencies for um, for the work that you're doing. So even if you do have a highly um, efficient team that's knocking it out, we expect the pipeline to come even faster with more projects. I sound like Debbie Downer. I don't mean to you know, say that, but I, but I do, I mean, that is a, that's a concern, right? I mean, we we're moving this along and, and you guys are building capacity and I, and I hear you, but just something that I'm thinking about as I'm seeing the presentation. So um, thank you, Madam Pro Tem. I don't have any other questions, but I do really appreciate being able to go back and look at the other um, uh, presentations that have been, been made to council, because I think that that will really um, maybe inform some of our future decisions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next up, we have Councilman Parity. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, this has been really illuminating and I just appreciate the degree of detail um, and the hard work that's been put into revamping some of these processes because that 261 bar is just truly daunting. Um, so thank you. Um, I, my, I took myself out of queue and put myself back in because I have a related um, or like loosely related question. Um, and if if you all need to send an answer to this along, that's fine because it's a little bit off the topic. But um, I know Proposition 123 had a requirement that um, in order for a municipality to be eligible for funds under that law, um, uh, applications for um, any kind of residential project that's 50 to 100% affordable units have to be completed within like 90 days. So I know here we're talking about pre-inclusionary, pre-AHA. I know we have AHART um, and that AHART does amazing work. Um, so my side question is just, um, are you all foreseeing any challenges meeting that Prop 123 requirement um, to get those larger affordable projects done within 90 days? To look at our processes to see how we can best meet that 90-day mm -hmm. mandate. Um, in addition to that, we have folks that are participating at the state level um, in those conversations around shaping Prop 123, uh, including you know future releases of some guidance uh, for for sort of uh, a little bit more intricate detail of of how that system will be uh, working. Um, it's it's. You know, often challenging as, as these things get baked a little bit to be able to speculate exactly what you're going to need, um, but it's it's high on our radar and, and we're doing a lot of work on it currently. 
So. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. <laughs> um, thank you and Godspeed. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that it was interesting to me and I, I appreciate the degree of data because um, actually looking at the um, glut of applications that were filed right, right at the end of the grace period, um, if you spread sort of the excess, you know, beyond flat from that quarter over all subsequent quarters, our applications are actually, actually would be flat. So if, in other words, we're averaging basically the same as we ever were, which has not been kind of the spin in the media in a lot of places. And that was interesting to me. That's a comment, not a question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so my questions are, um, today is, sorry, let me get, today is the end of February. The deadline is May 17th. When do you think you would all come back with some type of formal recommendation for city council um, to, to act on to extend the, if needed, the May 17, 2024 deadline? Like what are, like, because usually we, I, on the last slide, um, it's reviewing the data, determine what the final change will be approved, but, and then questions, which I appreciate, so you needed to hear from all of us. But what can my colleagues, so that they understand um, how fast they need to meet with you if they have questions specifically for projects in their council districts or to get caught up to speed because when we did the extension, um, just so everyone remembers when we did the extension, we did it on review cycles. So that's why the, the, the graphs on the review, amount of review cycles are so important. So on the graph, if we're if you can get to the fourth review cycle, you can get to the end of the year. But it seems like several are caught up on two and three reviews still, um, and it doesn't seem like the trajectory is to get all of them through till May seventeenth, or else you'd all have to say, okay, we're not working on any current projects. We're only working on this queue, which I don't think is going to bode well with anybody in the city. So, what are the next steps on your side? Um, we're continuing to evaluate the data so that we have sort of the best picture. Um, if you look at my whiteboard, I have what appears to be some advanced calculus trying to back into like, hey, what are potential scenarios that, that we could look at or should look at? Um, we don't currently have an answer on that, um, but looking at you know that May deadline coming up quickly uh, and knowing the steps that, that are in advance of any change that would be needed, um, I, would, I would venture to guess that that any changes would be would be talked about and proposed next month. Okay, so for for all of my colleagues who are watching, and I'll just ping everyone also also, if you need a, a briefing on the expanding housing affordability and any proposals that they're bringing forward, if you could have your staff work on that um, ASAP. So because we'd have to the May deadline is a Friday, and so we would have to get this passed. Um, sometime sooner than that. And so just making sure that you all know that this is on us to make sure that we're all caught up. Um, next in the queue is Councilman Hine. Sorry, I'm in and out of the queue, but um, thank you, uh, committee chair. Just to, uh, to echo the uh, committee chair's comments, I mean, uncertainty is expensive and all of these projects are multi-year projects. And I recognize that some some developers just threw some applications against the wall, hoping things would stick. Uh, but there were certainly some 
developers that were really interested in moving things forward. And, um, and so uh, I would encourage uh, one, the process is going to take a minute <laughs> or a month for us to, to, to get through it. But, um, but I would certainly encourage uh, sooner than later because uh, that would just be, I mean, it would be very difficult for a developer to get to three weeks before the deadline and then realize that they're uh, not going to make the deadline. So, um, so yeah, so thank you for um, prioritizing certainty as soon as you can possibly get it. Thank you, committee chair. Thank you. And that, thank you, Councilman Hines. That's exactly why they're here. I rearranged, I did a juggling act on Ludi to get this here in front of us so that we um, could get this and have the conversation about what next steps would be. I guess I have one more question for you, Chris. On the slide that has the circle, the, the slides aren't um, like numbered, so it's hard, but it's time in progress active projects where it's 60% on the consumer side and it's like about 40%, let's say, on our side. Yeah, that on the ones that are prior to expanding EHA, are you emailing them or what is that conversation between those applicants because we're not concerned. I, I think that's a snapshot of all progress, right? That means like all, all things in the city queue, or is this all just e pre-EHA? This is pre-EHA. Okay. Sorry, I just, I just okay. So all, for all the ones that are sitting at 60%, Councilman Alvidrez had a good point that it does take a time to go back to your, your um, contractor and to your engineer and re-engineer things. How are we doing outreach on the 60% that it's sitting in that queue to make sure that we're also holding them accountable? Are they getting weekly emails reminding them that the deadline is May 17th? Can you just talk to me about that correspondence? Uh, we, are, we are not currently sending out um, unsolicited correspondence to our applicants on these deadlines. Uh, each of the review comments that they get back, so every review cycle uh, has a really detailed analysis uh, including all of the dates that they need to hit. Um, so they have that in writing in front of them when they get those review comments. Um, and then our system, uh, when they're in, so a project gets 180 days to resubmit, so six months, um, they do get, uh, when they get to that 180 day mark, they do get a system automated email generated that says, hey, your, your, uh, your application is being flagged for inactivity. Um, so that does go out to to them at that point, but obviously that's a long that's a long window. Okay, um, and then can you? When I had a briefing about this, can you talk to me about the hundred and day um, zoning code provision on, on ones that have been kicked out of the process? And can you inform my colleagues on that? Do you know what I mean? Can you restate the hundred and day zoning code? So from like there's certain projects when you and I had a briefing on this mm -hmm. that there's certain projects that from the time you apply you have 180 days in the system and which ones have gotten moved on. Oh, so anything so prior to launch of uh, the EHA deadline in 2022, uh, we built into our permitting system an automation that closes out those inactive applications. Um, again, with with for formal applications with 30-day notice that, hey, you, you really need to resubmit um, to ensure that we have clean and accurate data that we're reporting on. Um, in terms of everything here, 
these are all projects that continue to be active. So they've met their 180 day threshold with a resubmittal uh, or that clock is ticking and simply hasn't gotten to that 180 day threshold. Does that answer? Yep. Okay. And do you, is there any way that you could slice this to say that which ones out of these Q are like, so if you have 180 day, are there any that are like 160 days? Close, like 20 days out <laughs> from being kicked out? Emily has an incredibly unwieldy spreadsheet that has I'm sure that she information. Does. Okay, Emily, I'll, I'll just set up a briefing with you so that I can see which ones, because if they are sitting there and like they're close to, like they're 20 days out from the 180 day timeline, I'd love to know which ones, because as it was mentioned up here, some developers did just put some pencil to paper and, and submit it prior to the EHA deadline. And so that is also something that we are tracking on our side. And so I just wanna hold both parties, both sides um, accountable in this, because I think we have seen um, a lot of great progress on our times. Um, I'd like to see better ones, I think all of us would, but also we all have, we, both sides have to be accountable. Yes, absolutely. So as Chris said, I have a huge spreadsheet where I'm tracking the closure dates for all projects. And so I, I can extrapolate, you know, where they're at. Um, it's all every day I'm checking the system to make sure that projects are being closed timely, um, that there's not a glitch in the system. Um, and then when projects are getting close and making sure that they do receive the automated email, because sometimes there were glitches where they were not receiving it. So making sure that we then follow up with a deadline. Um, the project coordinators are aware of that. They're communicating with their teams. We have constant conversations about um, you're approaching a closure for an activity. What are you working on, if anything? Is it a tier three encroachment? Is it a landmark process? Are you going to BOA? Like, where are you at? What are you doing? Um, so we're definitely in communication with some of the teams, not all of them. A couple of our project coordinators have taken it upon themselves to proactively reach out to theirs, but that isn't across our whole team. Um, but I've provided them with a list of their pre-EHA projects and which review cycles so that they can contact people. Um, and then something that you just said reminded me, I can share this statistic. So of the 261, um, let's see if we can go back to that. So out of that 261 concepts, right, that were submitted in quarter two, um, we checked to see which of those remained open and which Kind of closed because they threw something at the wall and it wasn't a viable project. Um, so there were 248 records that were opened between April 1st and that June 30th date and of those 118 um, have closed and have advanced to an active SDP. So that's about 47%. So that's still higher than our kind of average number of projects that we would see if we would see 30 per month and you know maybe in a couple months 30 new SDPs would come in. So we saw 118 remain active, but the rest um, were closed inactive and they did not move forward. Got it. Thank you so much. Um, well, thank you all for coming and we'll stay tuned for next steps. And just let me know as you move forward with any recommendations so that we could get our council members briefed prior to coming before the meeting. And then we can move forward with any type of actions that you all recommend. Um, and with that, we have no further business in front of us. This committee stands adjourned. Thank you.
plus services and increased that to more than 51 million in 2019. According to the mayor's 2022 budget, investments in affordable housing and homelessness resolution will include more than $190 million. A centralized and strategic approach to spending that money will support more efficient and effective use of taxpayer dollars. However, the new department still has not completed a staffing analysis to ensure the department has the resources necessary to successfully